What are you seeking? What are you seeking? These are the very first words that Jesus spoke to the first two people who began to follow him in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? Why are you following me? What are you expecting to happen now? We spent the last three weeks doing a flyover of, of Genesis and of the first 14 chapters of the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Last week, we concluded with the descendants of Jacob, along with a great multitude of Egyptians, standing on the, the far side of the Red Sea as the bodies of their oppressors washed up on the seashore. Liberated from their oppressors, but, but staring into a vast expanse of unknown wilderness before them. These are some of the questions being asked as they follow the great pillar of fire that was leading them through the wilderness. What are you seeking? Why are you following me? What are you expecting to happen now? I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. You can find it on page 62 in the first half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin reading by just the first six verses. Exodus 15, 22. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore they named it Marah, bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let us pray. Father, as we meditate upon your word and seek to place ourselves under your authority, we pray for you to further align our hearts with yours, that we may gladly do which is right in your eyes and give ear to your commandments. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Three days into their journey, and they've already begun to grumble. Three days. So if it was a Sunday morning that they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and began to sing the, the song of Moses recorded in the first half of this chapter, if that was on a Sunday morning, say, well, the sun hasn't even set on Tuesday, and they're already grumbling. Now, it's not to say that lack of water was not a serious issue. Of, of course it was. Presumably, the, their water supplies were running dry. And after several days of travel, they had found no water, only to, to then find some water that proved to be undrinkable, likely due to too much dissolved mineral salts. They named it Mara, which means bitterness. But that describes their, their attitude just as much as it describes the water there. It's one thing to, to recognize the, the seriousness of the situation and to humbly turn to the only one possible source of solution. 
It's quite another thing to grumble against others who are just as needy as you. Surely we, we all recognize our own proclivities to take out our frustrations about our circumstances on anyone within striking distance, verbally lashing out at anyone other than the one who is Lord of our circumstances. You see, it's much harder to, to hold on to your anger and to, to feel justified in it when you acknowledge the real object of your anger is not your circumstances or others, but God. And yes, you would still struggle with this temptation even if God was visibly manifesting himself before your very eyes in a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. But we must never let the bitterness of our circumstances embitter our hearts. And the remedy for not letting the bitterness of our circumstances embitter our hearts is to do the very obvious thing that they did not do. Pour out your heart before God in prayer. Yes, there's a problem with the water in front of them, but God clearly doesn't have a problem controlling water, does he? He'd already turned the water of the Nile River into blood. He had just parted the waters of a great sea to create a wall of water on their right and their left that they could pass through on dry ground. He can handle the bitter waters of Mara. And so he does, turning what was bitter into something sweet. But did this transform the bitterness of their hearts? That's the question. It says that there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Again, as we saw with the spilling of the blood of the lambs at the Passover in, in chapter 12, God is clearly saying that these people that he spared from the plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians were no less deserving of judgment than those who were not spared. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he threatens to bring upon them the same plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians. But he is the Lord, our healer. In the Song of Moses, immediately preceding this, uh, they had sung about the Lord being their warrior who fought their battles. But now they are coming to know him as their provider and their healer, their shepherd who cares for their needs. Not only did he transform the waters of Marah to make it drinkable, he led them to ample water at Elim. And then picking up in verse 1 of chapter 16, they set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So we're exactly one month into the journey that began the night of the Passover. Verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So dramatic. Such a, a skewed perspective of things. But understand, this is often what our grumbling sounds like in the ears of our Creator and Savior. 
Three different times in verses 7 through 8, Moses explains to the people that it's not against Moses and Aaron that the people are grumbling. It's against God. Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And notice exactly what they're saying. They're, they're saying it would have been better for the Lord's judgment to have not passed over them, but rather to have taken their lives in Egypt. That would have been better. Judgment would have been better than a salvation that still includes hardships. Their life of serving the Lord rather than serving Pharaoh, the serpent king, is not living up to their expectations. And so they whine and complain about their hardships. The hardships are real for them and often for us. We don't know if or when any given hardship is going to end. And yet we're called to keep moving forward, trusting our God to lead us as he sees fit. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my laws or not. The form of testing becomes clearer as the passage unfolds. It has to do with gathering this this bread from heaven, which they end up calling manna. Manna sounds like the Hebrew phrase, what is it? In verse 14, it's described as a a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, which appeared every morning, like like thin sheets of unbaked pie crust. Verse 23 talks about uh, them either baking it like bread or boiling it like oatmeal. Verse 31 says it was white in color and that the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Honey was an absolute delicacy in a time before refined sugar when honey was the only thing. You could only find it in the wild. So this stuff was awesome. That's the point. And there it was every morning, day after day, for the entire 40 years, they traveled through this wilderness, as we're told in verse 35. But what is the test? What's the test here in verse 4 that God references? Well, Sunday through Thursday, the people were to gather each morning only as much as they needed for that day. No more and no less. If you failed to get up in the morning to gather, you'd find that was what was left on the ground was melted away as the sun grew hot. And if you gathered more than you needed, or if you otherwise tried to ration your portion, you'd find that what you stored in your tent for the next day bred worms and stank by morning. So that was Sunday through Thursday, but on Friday mornings, on Fridays, you were to gather twice as much as you needed for the day, trusting that what you stored for Saturday would not breed worms and stink as it did all the other days, because come Saturday morning, there was no manna to be found, that the people might rest from their labors. So that's the test. Daily, they are being trained to to get out and work morning by morning, and yet not to hoard trusting that God will provide tomorrow just as he has provided today. This testing, it's not for God to discover something about them. It's for them to discover something about themselves, namely their unbelief, as they are tempted to to hoard Sunday through Friday and as they are tempted to go out and gather on Saturday. The testing exposes their spiritual weakness, And it does so, so that they might begin to fully entrust themselves to God, their provider, their healer. It was designed to conform them into humble, trusting people, 
And then, jumping ahead 40 years, at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness, as the Lord's about to allow the new generation to finally enter the promised land, God explains to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that He had done good to them in the wilderness. He had done good to them both by allowing them to experience hunger and thirst and by testing them day by day with the manna. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. And he humbled you. This is Moses speaking to the people about the Lord. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He did this so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, The Lord, your God, disciplines you. God's testing of our faith is for our good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The Apostle Paul's afflictions that he experienced, his hardships that he experienced as he followed Jesus, were designed by God to make him rely not on himself, but on God. God's testing of our faith is for our good. Now in our trials, there's always more going on than just our sanctification. But there's never less. That's always in view. Yes, some of our hardships are due to wicked people doing wicked things and spiritual forces of evil doing evil things and the terrible consequences of the the curse of disease and disaster, disaster and death that plagues this world. But even given all of that, amidst all the reasons that God allows what He allows in your life, One of those reasons is to refine your faith. That it would become more precious than gold tested by fire. 1 Peter 2.7 God's testing of our faith is for our good. Picking up in Exodus chapter 17 verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Notice that, again, it's it's God who is deliberately leading them into a place of need. Continues, and they, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. They have all the bread that they need, but they're without water. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with this thirst? Despite everything they've experienced thus far, their grumbling against Moses, which is really grumbling against God, has reached a fever pitch. It's now described as a form of testing the Lord. So not only do they doubt God's goodness and concern for them, now they are demanding that He prove His goodness toward them. They're saying, never mind what you've done for me already, God. Never mind what you've promised to do. 
You need to fix this particular problem now. You need to remove this particular affliction. Prove yourself to me, God. Prove your love. And if you pass the test, God, then I'll consider continuing to serve and follow you. Verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, presumably in the pillar of fire, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because of their quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so we see that grumbling is a symptom of unbelief that God is among us. Grumbling gives expression to our doubt that God is at work in our circumstances and that he knows what he's doing. And our grumbling puts God on trial. And thus, it's a very serious issue. Recounting what happened on this particular day at Massah and Meribah in Exodus 17, hundreds of years later, the Lord puts it this way in Psalm 95, verse 11. Therefore, at Massah and Meribah, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because of their testing. Because of their grumbling. So in your hardships, do not harden your hearts as they did, as it says in Psalm 95. Do not doubt God's presence with you. Do not judge His goodness toward you. Do not put Him to the test. For He has already proven His presence with us. He's already proven His goodness toward us. When God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to dwell among us that first Christmas, experiencing all the hardships this world can throw at us, experiencing weakness and pain and betrayal and loss, only to then suffer a horrific death at the hands of wicked oppressors. But unlike us and unlike the Israelites, He did it all without grumbling. Just before beginning his public teaching ministry, we read this account in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, he is the Son of God. He, he could have commanded those stones to become loaves of bread, but he was there in the wilderness in order to succeed where the Israelites and all others had failed. And so he endured his affliction, sustained by his faith in his Father. Verse 4, Jesus answered the tempter, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
In other words, he's telling Jesus, put God to the test. Make him prove his presence with you and his goodness toward you. For surely God is not here and God does not care for you. For why else would God have allowed you to suffer and hunger in this way? Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He's saying your suffering in this wilderness can be brought to an end. And it can end without you ever having to suffer and die on a cross. You will worship me. The evil one no doubt tempted the wilderness generation in the same way. Not only did the wilderness generation continually complain about how they wished they had never left Egypt, as soon as they reached the promised land, they took one look at the inhabitants of the land that they were supposed to dispossess of the land, and they actually started making plans to go back to Egypt, to return to serve and thus to worship the serpent king. But Jesus responded very differently to that temptation. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to the devil, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus succeeded where all of God's people have failed. And because He succeeded in our place, because He suffered the plagues of judgment that we deserve in our place, because He rose victorious over sin and death in our place, we can now be transformed to endure every hardship, to withstand every temptation, and to do so without grumbling. For He is the Lord, our healer. As that tree was tossed into the waters of Morah to remove the bitterness, Jesus was hung on a tree to remove the bitterness and the judgment that we deserve and to heal the bitterness of our hearts. As the rock at Rephidim was struck and outpoured life-giving water, Jesus, our rock, was struck on the cross and outpoured rivers of living water. As the manna came down from heaven to satisfy their hunger in the wilderness, Jesus came down from heaven to satisfy our spiritual hunger. While discussing the wilderness manna with some people who had started following Jesus in John chapter 6, he tells them this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh meaning on the cross. Without food and water, you die. You must eat and you must drink in order to survive. There is no other way. Refuse to eat and you will die. Eat and you will live. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. Eat and live. What are you seeking? For those of you who are following Jesus, why are you following him? What are you expecting to happen now that you have? 
a life free from hardship? We are still in the wilderness. We have not yet arrived at the promised land. And the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. The testing of our faith is for our good. We must expect hardship. But those who feast on the spiritual nourishment that he provides will be strengthened and satisfied in him in the midst of every hardship. And we will one day enter into his glorious presence forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Cause each one of us to hear your voice in it, that our hearts would be strengthened and satisfied in you. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.